Hebrews chapter 9. Um, actually, I'm going to back up into chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 13, which was the clinching statement at the end of our text last week. And so that provides the transition into chapter 9. And so I'll read chapter 8, verse 13, down through verse 14. Let us hear the word of God as we consider Jesus the better sacrifice. Let's hear the word of God. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not this of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. In church, we need his spirit, don't we? Amen? Amen. Let us just dive right in and continue where we left off last week. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. The old has passed. The new has come. What the old anticipated, Christ delivers. What the old foreshadowed, Christ solidifies. What the old symbolized, Christ actualizes. 
What the old promised, Christ fulfills. And so we considered last week in chapter 8, verses 6 to 13, the author's argument for why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And the reason he argues is the new covenant is better than the old covenant because the new covenant has better promises. And so we considered those better promises last week. This was summarized powerfully by what Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 in the Old Testament, quoted extensively here in chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And here were the better promises, namely that by the sovereign mercy and gracious hand of God, he gives to his people three things. Surrendered wills to obey him, intimate access to know him, and shameless hearts that are fully forgiven, so there's nothing between them. The new covenant is better because God has promised through it that he will be our God and we will be his people forever. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the summary of the New Covenant blessing. You want a good summary of the New Covenant blessing? It's unpacked here extensively here in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. But that one sentence in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is how powerful the promise of the New Covenant is. God will keep up his end as he always does, and God will enable us to keep up our end, unlike our forefathers and mothers in the old covenant, under the old covenant. We talked about the weakness of the old covenant, and it's important to have this in mind as we transition into chapter 9. The weakness of the old covenant was not in the relational contract itself. Not in the terms of the covenant. The weakness was in human beings' incapacity to keep the covenant. We are by nature covenant breakers. We are by nature vow breakers. And we, we, we talked about the illustration of a, a husband and wife coming together and, and, and making commitments to one another. In, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to death to his part, as long as we both shall live. And both parties are responsible for keeping their side of the commitment, the covenant, the vows. And what we see all throughout the old covenant is God keeping covenant, faithful God. And what we see over and over again is the lack of faithfulness, the spiritual adultery of the nation of Israel. We are like them. That's the point. We are naturally vow breakers instead of vow keepers. We walk away from God instead of run into the arms of God. We go our way instead of God's way. We trust our instincts more than we trust God's instructions. So Jeremiah said in another place in his prophecy, Jeremiah 17, 9, it gets worse. This is the bad news that that is a prelude to the good news. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So Jeremiah said before he gave the new covenant prophecy. In other words, our hearts are so out of whack. Our hearts are so out of sync with the heart of God that we are not only guilty of 
those sins. We are unaware that that's our condition. We lack a self-awareness that our hearts are that dysfunctional in the way they operate in relationship to God and his will and his ways. I mean, our lack of self-awareness on these matters reminds me of an experience I had just this week. I was on a plane, really quick trip. This is probably why I got sick. <laughs> it's like a tin can of germs in the air, <laughs> right? And so here I, I'm, 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 I'm next to this individual in this small little jet, very, very short flight, 30 minutes, and this person had zero self-awareness. How do I know? This person thought that part of my seat was also part of their seat. Totally clueless. Part of them, sorry, Rachel, was on part of me. And then they proceeded to, to eat their lunch. And they got crumbs on my pants. And they didn't even try to brush them off. And I'm sitting there like, I have never seen such an amazing illustration of lack of self-awareness in my entire life. And I kid you not, what am I doing while this is happening? I'm not kidding. I'm working on this part of my sermon. How much more, Jeremiah says, are we lacking self-awareness when it comes to us recognizing that our thoughts are not God's thoughts, our ways are not God's ways, there's a way that seems right to us and the end thereof is death and we run headlong in the opposite direction. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked above all. Who can know it? We instinctually go our way instead of God's way. But here's the good news of the new covenant. God is going to take that heart that naturally breaks God's covenant He's going to take that heart that's naturally not self-aware of its own sin and ignorance and he's going to make it new. He's going to make it want what God wants. He's going to make it love what God loves. He's going to make it hate what God hates. He's going to make it everlastingly bound to God so that it never turns away from God. That's the new covenant. That's the promise of God in the new covenant. Christ will bound our hearts to the heart of God. That's what we need, and that's what God has graciously given us in the new covenant. He gives us wills to want him, access to pursue him, and forgiveness for the sins that would keep us separated from him. So what we need more than anything this is why this is such an important subject. This is why it's such an, a lengthy section of the book of Hebrews. What we need are the promises that Christ brings as our great high priest, as the mediator of a new covenant. So now in chapter 9, the author continues to argue his point that the new is better than the old. Not only because of the better promises that we unpacked in detail last week, and have just reminded ourselves of just for the last few moments, it's not only better because of these better promises, it's better because of what has made these promises a reality in our lives. These promises have come to us at great cost, not to us, but to the Son of God who paid for these promises through his sacrifice in our place on the cross. We are blessed 
by the blood of Jesus. That's where he goes next. These promises have come. These better promises are based on a better sacrifice. Christ gave up his life so that the life of God could run through our veins and circulate through our new hearts that beat to know and glorify the one true God. So in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, here's what we're going to consider today, that the better promises of this better covenant are brought to us through the better sacrifice of Christ. If you're a guest, you're like, why, do you, why are you overusing the word better? Because it's all over Hebrews. The name of the series is Jesus is Better, and that's his argument. Jesus is better than everything that was a big deal under the old covenant. And he's, he's making his ex- exclamation point in this section, that this better high priest has offered a better sacrifice that has secured for the people of God better promises that will never, ever, ever fade away. So that's the big idea we want to consider this morning, that the better promises of this better covenant are brought to us through the better sacrifice of Christ. And by extension of Christ's better sacrifice, his once-for-all final sacrifice, this also is a moment that signals not only the foundation of these blessings, but it's also a moment that signals the end of the old covenant era. It's also a moment that brings the old covenant practices that foreshadowed the offering of Christ to an end. And we already read that. That's why we started in chapter 8, verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, it's at this moment, at this moment in redemptive history, on the other side of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, on the other side of his glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father, that moment, that accomplishment triggers the end of the temple, of the Levitical priesthood, and of every sacrifice that had ever been sacrificed up into that point in redemptive history. That's all changing now because Christ has satisfied it all. It's very interesting. This is just a little, I'm a little bit of a church history nerd. You, you wouldn't know this unless you, you study dates and times. But this letter was written probably around 67, 68 A.D., just two to three years before the temple in Jerusalem would be decimated, never to be rebuilt again. No more temple, no more priesthood, no more sacrifices. It's been that way for 2,000 plus years, even though there have been many attempts to make those things right again. Why haven't they? Here's the reason why. Because Christ has fulfilled it all. And even the sovereign Lord of human history is not allowing these things to be built and instituted once again. That's my take. That's not the text. They're no longer needed. No more priesthood, no more sacrifices, no more holy places made with hands. They're no longer needed. Christ fulfilled them all. And so what we're going to see here as these things come to an end based on the better sacrifice of Jesus, we're going to see a beautiful, a beautiful gift that's offered to us through this better sacrifice. 
If you take all of those new covenant promises we talked about last week, surrendered wills to obey the will of God, open access to the presence of God, shameless hearts that are forgiven where there's nothing between us and God anymore. You take all of those promises and you, and you describe them with one word. What's the one word? And we're going to get at it in the text today. It's this, freedom. The old covenant was a time of restriction. Now in Christ there is great freedom. What was once off limits to the ordinary child of God is now open, freely open for all of God's people who have become a kingdom of priests who can draw near to the holy place of God's presence anytime, anywhere, any moment. That freedom that we often take for granted has been, has been secured for us through this transitionary period of time where things have moved from the old covenant to the new covenant. And that freedom that we just have been gloriously partaking of this morning here as we've gathered for worship is a freedom that this author is so eager to make sure his readers get. Because they were living in between the times. So like the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the author's arguing in our text and all the way through to chapter 11 that where the high priest was able to go just one day a year on the most holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement, we in Christ, we can go there anytime. The area of the temple where the, where the Levitical priests would serve maintaining the, the, the ornaments and the furniture of the, whole, of the holy place, that space of, of service that was restricted to a few special servants, we all now have the freedom to serve like them in God's kingdom purposes. This freedom is amazing. And just like many freedoms we possess, whether it's as citizens of this country or citizens of the kingdom of God, because we operate in them so often, we forget how freeing they really are. So let's dive into this. Let's dive into this freedom that's been given to us by Christ. But before we appreciate the freedom, we first need to understand the restrictions. So first, let's consider the restrictions for approaching God under the old covenant. This is verses 1 through 10. Look at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Verse 1 reminds us that under the old covenant, there were clear regulations, restrictions for who, how, and where you could draw near to God's presence in worship. Before we briefly look at them and get to the author's main point, it's helpful to look ahead and be instructed of the main point. Be, that the main point is not to go deep on these things. I love verse 5, as, especially as a preacher. He says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He just kind of flies through and gives like a, a preview of the, of, the, of, the, of the earthly temple and the, and the ornaments and um, the furniture and who went in there. And he says, now, now I'm not going to talk about that in depth. And so I'm not going to. I love that pass. Isn't that wonderful? All right. Because that's not his main point. His point isn't to get caught up in all the symbolism of what we just read. But understand the broader point. Only certain people could go there. Only certain people could be there. Only certain people could do that stuff. There were restrictions. 
So verses 2 through 5 address the regulations, the restrictions of where you could draw near to God's presence. God could only be approached in the tent. The tabernacle, while God's people were in transit. The temple, once the temple was built in Jerusalem. Beyond the tent's courtyard, there were two compartments to this tent. There was the holy place and the most holy place. And within each of these compartments, there was prescribed furniture for each section. There were the golden lampstands, which were a reminder of God's ever-guiding presence. There was the table with the bread that was a reminder of God's ever-nourishing presence. There was the golden altar of incense, which was a reminder of God's ever-helping presence. And then the Ark of the Covenant, which was a reminder of God's most holy presence. Over and over again, these, these spaces and these places were to remind God's people that he was there with them among them. I mean, think about it this way. As God's people were traveling through the wilderness, each night they would set up their camp. There were 12 tribes. Three tribes would set up their tents facing north. Three tribes would set up their tents facing south. Three tribes east, three tribes west. And there was a big tent in the middle. Whose tent was that? God's. Everybody, everybody stayed in the tent. So did God. He was there with them, among them. And everything about the tabernacle, everything then about the temple was to be a visual reminder. God is there. Now, verses 6 and 7 address the regulations of who could go there and what you could do in there. Who could approach God's presence in his tent? Not anyone could just go up to the tent and go, hey, God, can I come in? There were only certain people who could go into God's tent. There were only certain people who could go into God's house, if you will. There were only certain people who could walk into God's presence. Well, we're told in verses 6 and 7 that they were the priests. The Levitical priests would go into the first section to perform their ritual duties, we're told in verse 6. And they did this according to the prescription of the law. What kind of things did they do? Well, they needed to make sure that they kept putting oil in the lamps, so they kept burning. They baked the bread for the tables. They, they did the, the prescribed mixture of the incense for the altars that were symbolic of the prayers of God's people. Then there was the high priest, who I already mentioned a few moments ago, who would enter the most holy place on the most holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement to bring in the blood of a sacrifice, apply it to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which was a symbol that God would accept the death of another in the place of his people who have sinned and deserve his judgment. So in summary, these were the regulations outlining who, how, and where for approaching God's presence. It was limited. That's what you need to hear. It was limited. It was restricted to certain people at certain times and at a certain place. So what was the point for all these regulations? What was the point of all these restrictions? If God wants his people to be near him, if God wants to hold up the mantra of the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. If God's heart is to be with his people, what's the point of all the restrictions? What's the point of all these regulations? Well, we're told in verse 8. 
By this, these restrictions, these regulations, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. In other words, it will be opened, but for a time, it's closed, it's restricted. So the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of this whole restrictive system, we're told, is symbolic for the present age. So God wants us to see something in the symbolism of the restrictions. Well, the first on the positive side is very, very obvious. God wants us to know that he's here. God wants us to know that he's near. That although God is at all places, at all times in his entire being, in other words, he's omnipresent, he's especially near to his people. He's especially close and wants to dwell with and be in relationship and in fellowship with his people. That's encouraging, isn't it? And all the furniture points to all the positive aspects of that. He guides us. He nourishes us. He answers our prayers. He forgives our sins. He takes care of us. Right? That's encouraging. But the negative side of the symbolism of all of these restrictions was you just can't march into God's holy presence. All of these old covenant regulations reveal that we can't draw near yet because we have a problem. Holy God will not tolerate unholiness in his presence. Intimate access to God's presence for all is not opened yet because we all have a big problem. In our sin, we are not morally, ethically, spiritually fit for being in the holy presence of God. And so while the old covenant system and structures for worship remain, the accent during that period of time in redemptive history is to accentuate how God is so holy, so glorious, so beautiful, so majestic, so other, that we who have profaned him by our sin have no intrinsic right to be near him. And if we do, if we try to come near him on our own terms, look out. How many of you are familiar with the Indiana Jones movies? Dude, I love Indiana Jones. Um, one of my faves. I mean, one of my favorite actors played both Han Solo in Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I mean, come on. Harrison Ford was living the life in the 80s, okay? He got to be both of those guys. I'm jealous, okay? Just jealous. And so in the first Indiana Jones movie, what was it called? Raiders of the Lost? Yeah, that arc. Right, and so the Germans, the Nazis were in pursuit of the lost Ark of the Covenant. And they believed that if, if, they got, if they could possess the Ark of the Covenant, then they could wield it as a weapon, much like you read about in the Old Testament. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant would go before God's people, and it would lead them into battle. And, and because of God's presence with them, they would win the battle. And so in the movie, the, these maniacal Nazis think, hey, if we can just get our hands on this lost Ark then we will be able to basically take over the world, okay? And so they find it. They find it. And there's this scene at the end of the movie where they're about to open it. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? Okay, oh yeah, thank you. Thank you, Drew, right? 
And so Indiana Jones and his, you know, whoever his damsel in distress was at that moment are tied to a pole. And as they're getting ready to take the top off of the, uh, off the, off, off of the ark, uh, Indiana Jones is saying, whatever you do, do not look, do not look, do not look. He knew something about what was inside that human eyes could not behold. And so you have the, you have the, 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 the German priest and you have the Nazi soldier and that guy with the little glasses who was just so creepy. Okay, they're all there. And then they lift up the ark and this light comes up out of the ark. And, and here's, what, here's what the priest says. He goes, it is beautiful. And then instantaneously all three of their faces melt off. And some of the corniest classic 80s special effects. I mean, their faces melted off. Do you know what I'm talking about, Drew? You remember that scene? Thank you. This is an exaggeration, okay? This is hyperbole. But they captured something there in that really awesome action-adventure flick. Is that God's glory is so beautiful. His holiness is so intense that if sinful eyes beheld it straight on, our faces would melt off. And so during the old covenant system, during the old covenant system of worship, the restrictions, the regulations were to warn us. Yes, God wants to be near us, but we have a problem in our sin. We can't draw near. We can't look at him. We can't be near him. Or in judgment, we would melt before the presence of his holiness. That's the point of the restrictions. So now the further point he makes in verse 9 is that even though these regulations and restrictions revealed this, sadly, these regulations and restrictions did not have the capacity to make our biggest need better. They did not have the power, we're told in verse 9, to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. All they did was allow worshipers on the outside to go through the ceremonial cleansing to participate in the external rituals that symbolize that one day, during a time of reformation, verse 10, those who are on the outside will get to be on the inside, but not yet. And so these rituals pointed to God's glory, his desire to be near his people, And our problem of not being able to draw near until something internal is taken care of. So all the old covenant regulations for where and who and how to worship, it was all a prelude to the time of reformation. When the consciences of worshipers will be perfected so that they could have intimate access to that most sacred space. And where conscience is an important word. I want to tease it out just for a moment. It's the internal moral compass that's built into the human heart. The word conscience here is used to highlight that, that the main issue with our unfitness for approaching God's presence is not an external one, it's an internal one. We deal with guilty and shameful consciences because inside, Our hearts are morally corrupt. Now, praise God, they don't always express themselves as corrupt as we could express them. But yet we are totally depraved and totally excluded nonetheless. 
But the author is saying there is coming a day when what's most needed on the inside will be taken care of. And when that, when that issue on the inside is taken care of, when, when the conscience of worshipers are cleansed at the deepest level, when this time of reformation and transformation takes place, which is an arrow that points to the new covenant blessing, then we can draw near. There will be freedom to be in that most sacred space in the very presence of God. And so there's the transition. The old covenant says God is near, but not everyone can draw near. And the author is saying those days are gone. Why? Verse 11. But when Christ appeared, here come the days of freedom. Here comes open access. Here comes the ability and the privilege to go where only a few could go and only for a limited period of time and for limited purposes. Now in Christ, all who trust in him can draw near. Game changer. Restriction is replaced by freedom. So let's look at this now, the freedom of approaching God under the new covenant. The anticipated time of reformation in verse 10 has now arrived, verse 11, with the arrival of Christ. He appeared to do on the inside what the external rituals could not do on the outside. He appeared to perfect the consciences of worshipers, to bring about this cleansing, this transformation. And so to go back to the earlier illustration, without Jesus, our faces would melt in the presence of God's holiness. But with Jesus, our great high priest, we can now go and draw near with confidence and joy in the very presence of God. Verse 11 exclaims that with the appearing of Christ, Look at verse 11, the good things have come. What are the good things? What are those good things? Those good things, the things that he just talked about from Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Surrendered wills. Open access. Forgiven souls. With the forgiveness of our sins, with access being open, with hearts that are submitted to the will of God, now we can enjoy the good things. Because Christ has brought them. How has he brought them? What did he do to bring these amazing good things to bear in our lives? We're told in verse 12. Here's how he did it. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What the high priest did over and over again, year after year, for thousands of years, 
only as a symbol of what ultimately needed to be done. Christ finalized and secured by his once-for-all sacrifice in our place on the cross. And we're told that after he committed that great sacrifice on our behalf, he entered into the real holy places, into the presence of God, and said, Father, here. Here, here's the price to secure for my people these promises, these privileges, these delights, these blessings have been bought by blood. An eternal redemption, a price that's paid once in full, never to be paid again, securing forever the promises of redemption. In verse 13, he makes an argument from the least to the great because you have to understand these, these hearers, they, they, they worshiped as outsiders in the old covenant system. They remember what it was like to be on the outside of the tent and to watch the, the high priest walk in on that holy, solemn day, Yom Kippur, and just wait with bated breath as he went in on their behalf to that place that only he could go once a year on behalf of all the people. They remember what it was like to be on the outside and for them to come out and to feel the relief. God accepted the sacrifice. And so he argues from least to grace. You remember what that was like? Well, we don't, but they did. And he said, He says that the blood of bulls and goats gave us another year of mercy. If the blood of bulls and goats gave us another year of mercy, how much more has the blood of Christ secured for us an eternal redemption? It's finished. It's finished. Once for all. Oh, it is so tempting to keep pushing on because he keeps hitting this over and over again, verses 15 through the end of chapter 9, again in chapter 10. He just keeps coming up with this. He doesn't get over it. It's done. He did it. It's secured. These promises, they're real. They're ours now and forever. Woo! And he, and he wants the hearers to be as jazzed as he is about it. You remember that place where only the high priest could go once a year? We can go there anytime. I smacked myself and turned it off. <laughs> I've been preaching for 20 years. I've never done that before. <laughs> You're never going to let me live this down. Hey, Dad, remember the time you smacked your rear end when you were preaching and you shut your mic off? Greg, you can edit this. Okay. <laughs> Pause. Edit. Okay, look, I love. 
The Trinitarian accent in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Oh, verse 14 is amazing. Jesus bought it. Jesus paid the price. But look, the whole Trinity is involved. This is amazing. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God the Father, and through that purify our hearts. So Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, gave his life on the cross and presented that sacrifice to the Father, and he accepted it on our behalf. It's Trinitarian. It's beautiful. Consider the details. It's gorgeous. No more dead works. No more vain attempts of of trying to appease the wrath of God through our own efforts. Now, through this better sacrifice, we have freedom to go into God's presence and enjoy him now and forever. And not only enjoy him, but the way this text ends is serve him. Use this freedom from sin to enjoy him. Use this freedom from sin to get help from him. But use this freedom to serve the living God. We become a kingdom of priests now. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter. There was just a few Levitical priests doing what they did day in and day out. But now all of God's people have been mobilized into service through the blood of Jesus. It's beautiful. Let me... Let me give you this quote, and let me give you a few things to think about as we close this down. This is what happens when I'm sick and I preach. I think I've said a whole lot more than I was planning. That's part of God's mercy to me, letting me know that he's with me when I don't feel good. Look at Dennis Johnson, the Dennis Johnson quote, John. The self-offering of Christ bestows on believers benefits beyond our capacity to fathom. His blood silences the charges of our own accusing, shame-shrouded conscience. He defeats and disarms Satan, who can no longer prosecute or enslave us by the fear of death. Yet Christ's death does more than meet our need for eternal redemption through cleansing, forgiveness, and liberation. The goal of the redemption he secured is to bring us into God's presence as priests consecrated to serve the living God. All of these benefits coming to us freely, purchased for us by Christ, not so that we can just enjoy them ourselves, which is part of it, but so we can go out and serve him in love and let others know what Christ has done to bring these blessings into our lives. So church, how do we respond to all this? Rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice in the benefits of the better sacrifice of Christ. There is freedom. Let me just throw these out there for you, and then we're done. Rejoice in the benefits of the better sacrifice of Christ. First, rejoice that Christ has cleansed your sin, transformed your heart, and freed you from a guilty conscience. Don't leave today with a heavy heart. Don't leave today dragged down by the, by the remembrance of your faults and failures. Plead the blood of Christ for your sin today. Claim the forgiveness that's yours by grace through faith in Jesus. You may have screwed up last night and be sorry for it, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin. Claim it this morning. You crawled in the worship today. 
You didn't feel good. You feel guilty. You're shame. You're filled with shame because of what you've done. Don't leave with the shame. Leave rejoicing that Christ's sacrifice is greater than your shame. Rejoice. Free from sin. Second, rejoice that Christ has opened access to the holy presence of God. Don't just come here on Sundays and go through the rituals. But we have liturgy. It's important. I think it's important for us to, have, to do things decently in order, the Bible tells us. We want to make sure that our, that our gatherings are shaped in a way that give us a full picture of God's call to worship, our need of Christ, the grace he's given, the access we have to prayer, receiving his nourishment from the word, opening space for the Holy Spirit to work, and then feasting on Christ as we come to him and yet again as we enjoy the Lord's Supper. All of that is important. But we do all of that not in preparation for one day being in the presence of God. We do that right now in the presence of God. He's here with us. We are here in his presence, worshiping in his presence. Church, he's here with us, hearing us sing, hearing us pray. He knows that we're here right now. And it makes his heart glad that we're taking advantage of the privilege of access to his presence. And finally, rejoice that Christ has delivered you from dead works and has freed you to live your life in service to your crucified and risen king. Stop wasting your energy doing the kind of stuff that you feel like you need to do to make up for your bad works. Don't use your energy for that. Don't use your energy trying to make up the God. You, you can't make up the God. I can't make up the God. Christ made up to the Father on our behalf. That's what his blood was for. Stop using your energy to grovel and try to self-atone. Use your energy to serve the living God who's freed you from your sins. Stop doing dead works to make up for your failures and start doing good works that make much of Jesus who's freed you. This is amazing, isn't it? This is such an amazing book. We take for granted the freedoms that we have in Christ. These believers who were living in between the times of the Old Covenant and New Covenant, they're like, You're, you tell me what? I can go where? I can do what? What? That's how radical of a game changer Jesus is. And church, he's no less a radical of a game changer today. We just need to do the hard work of looking at it, remembering it, and rejoicing in it. Amen? I better stop. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for meeting with us this morning. You're caring for us. You're present with us. Here we are lingering in your presence, hearing from you being stirred by you, looking dead on at the promises of the new covenant in Christ. This stuff is so amazing, God. Thanks for surrendering our hearts to you. Thanks for breaking our stubborn wills. Thank you for giving us access to know you intimately. Thank you for covering our shame and removing our guilt and forgiving our sins. Thank you for entering into this new covenant with us through the blood of Christ. Jesus, thank you for paying the price. (sighs) 
you for paying the price. Forgive us for trying to pay the price ourselves when we can't. Forgive us for trying to make up to the Father when you've done the only definitive work that can make our sins right before the holy presence of God. So would you fill us with renewed joy today that we have been partakers of these promises purchased by the finished work of Christ. Help us to live in this freedom, to glory in this freedom, to spread the word of this freedom, to be servants of the living God who have access to your very presence because all of our sins are forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.